Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast where I talk to a bunch of people from Reno about interesting things, stuff that matter to the city. And this week on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome Zach Cage. Zach is one of the owners of the Brewer's Cabinet. The Brewer's Cabinet has several bars, restaurants in the Reno area and a large production facility. So they do large scale brewing and own a bunch of local venues for beer and food and trivia. I also host trivia at several of the Brewer's Cabinet venues. It was great to learn a little bit about Reno's craft brew industry, kind of the story of the Brewer's Cabinet, how they got started, and some of just the behind the scenes of the beer world here in the biggest little city. As I mentioned, I host trivia at several local venues, including several of the Brewer's Cabinet locations. Tuesdays, I am at Sierra Tap House. Thursdays, I'm at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility. Both of those are mentioned in this episode. Come play trivia sometime. It's a lot of fun. You can find all of the venues at djtrivianevada.com. It's free to play. It's family-friendly at most of the venues. Check out the website to find one near you. That's djtrivianevada.com. This episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is my favorite local news source. Really, local media is incredibly important, and I'm very grateful for the work that Bob Conrad and This Is Reno do to make sure that we are learning about and knowing about what is happening here in Reno. You can follow them on social media, Facebook, and Instagram. I subscribe to their newsletter. I get the headlines in my email every day. I find that a pretty good way to keep caught up. Please do your part to support local journalism. It is very important. That's thisisreno.com. If you have any suggestions for guests, any feedback about the show, please let me know. I really do love to hear from listeners. You can find me on social media on Facebook and Instagram, or just shoot me an email. My email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And now, this week's guest, Zach Cage. Zach Cage, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I am happy to have you here. You are one of the owners of the Brewer's Cabinet, which while I was thinking up questions for this episode, I realized that I have hosted DJ Trivia at I think all of the Brewer's Cabinet properties. I think every single one of them, which is kind of fun. I didn't realize that until today. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, your name has been floating around in, in our conversations for some time. I I just recently got to meet you in person, so uh, that, that's been nice. But yeah, I, you've... You've been a bit of a, a household name. Yeah, it's been fun being all the different venues. So tell me a little bit about the Brewer's Cabinet. There's several venues in town, but Brewer's Cabinet is also, you're a brewer, so it's not just the venues in town. You're also making beer on a larger scale. So can you just talk a little bit about what the Brewer's Cabinet is and kind of what your what your various businesses are? The Brewer's Cabinet family of companies, as I often refer to it, consists of everything under the Brewer's Cabinet umbrella, Sierra Tap House, Old Bridge Pub, and... Shim's Surplus Supplies, which is the youngest one, the speakeasy music venue kind of model there. The Brewer's Cabinet itself was born in 2012 as a uh, brew pub. It's a term we use for a uh, a restaurant with a brewing facility attached to it. Uh, yeah, it, it evolved into what is now three three locations, all serving a little bit different purpose. Right next to the uh, full-service restaurant, we have what we call the tap room or the tasting room. It's more overflow, lighter food offerings, more beer, uh, a lot more comfortable of an environment to sit and 
talk about beer itself without the distraction of a full service restaurant going on uh, around you. And then um, we, we started along the way, we started our second brewing facility, which is much larger and much more removed out on West 4th Street, right along the Truckee River. It started as uh, purely a production facility where we were making larger batches of beer and also capable of uh, packaging it in different ways, namely kegs and cans. So that's how the Brewer's Cabinet brand has evolved. And we continue to evolve that space, having expanded uh, the production facility into uh, the whole building that we occupy, uh, as well as a large outdoor area that we are currently developing to hopefully by the end of the year really have achieved what I call a destination brewery. So it's not just a production facility anymore, but it's a, it's a hangout. It's a place where people and their families can go and, you know, enjoy the space safely, of course, and try all of the different beer. We'll have, um, we'll have a roof structure and outdoor facilities, probably live music from time to time, uh, different food truck offerings are, are there. So it's going to be really neat. It's already it's already quite popular, and it's only going to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really cool space. I do love that it's got that big outdoor area, and I'm excited to see what comes of it. I'm excited to hear that there's continuing plans to upgrade and renovate and stuff. Since I started hosting trivia there, I guess a little over a year ago, it's already come a long way, and things I can tell are in progress, so it's exciting. When you started with Brewer's Cabinet, was the plan to have various bars and pubs and venues in Reno? Or is it more focused on like the the wholesale brewing? Was that always kind of the plan to acquire other properties and kind of have a, you know, a family of locations? Or has that just kind of come up as opportunities have arisen? What was kind of like the vision when you started? Well, it's hard to use the word vision. Mike Connolly and I, we met back when we were around 17 or 18. And uh, we immediately discovered that we had like interests. You know, we were both going to college at UNR and going to study business, but we immediately started talking about how we wanted to, we really wanted to be entrepreneurs and business owners. The long-term vision, I mean, we were, again, very young and even on into our early 20s as we started implementing this, I don't know that we had a long-term vision that was very structured and, and detailed out. We knew directionally which way we wanted to go, you know, over time, slowly adding to the business portfolio. But uh, but originally we contacted a business broker and we were undecided on what type of business we were going to get into. I really wasn't familiar with that term craft beer until some years later. In those early stages, we knew we wanted to be business owners and we knew that we, incrementally we wanted to add to the business portfolio over time to in, in order to grow it. But um, we weren't decided on which business we were going to go into. And um, we looked at coin-operated laundries. We looked at mini-marts. We looked at uh, coin-operated car washes. We looked at a couple different bar uh, plays. And we ended up buying an established sports bar almost about 20 years ago. You know, sports bar is a lot of... Uh, your domestic beers and, you know, kind of Coors Light, Bud Light kind of environment Mm -hmm. at the time. And uh, as we got on into college, we started noticing that there were more exotic options uh, out there in terms of beer. And, and you know, in those days, the more exotic options were like Newcastle and Guinness and Corona even, which are considered very mainstream and 
not considered craft by uh, many. Yeah, I do remember. I do remember those days. Like like Blue Moon was um, considered, uh, you know, something new and exciting, right? I was very yeah, very exotic when it hit the market, and so uh, that was, you know, the the first generation of the American craft beer movement had already happened. Boston Beer Company, which is Sam Adams and Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, they're kind of like the godfathers of the American craft beer movement, in my opinion. They'd hit the scene. There was a, a lull. There was a period where it wasn't necessarily catching on to the national market. Eventually, it started to catch on, and especially with the younger crowd, folks that you know my age at the time, it took off. And then that kind of led way to what I call the second wave of the American craft beer movement, which is still going on today. You saw new terms, you know, hitting the, the space over time, like craft brewery. You know, there used to be just breweries and, uh, you know, Coors Light was, came from a brewery and so does here Nevada Brewing Company, you know, but then there's these new terms entering the lexicon of, you know, craft brewery and then microbrewery and nano brewery. And these all became industry standard terms that indicated what size or what capacity of brewing capacity, how big were your batches that you were turning out mm-hmm. instead of having a long term detailed and planned out vision, I'd say it was an evolution. Right after the sports bar, we our next venture was Sierra Tap House. And that was really the first time when we got into the craft beer scene. Uh, we, we became much closer, but you know, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, we had an informal relationship with them where we said, look, we will only serve your beer in our new location right on the river in Reno, Nevada. If you will guarantee that you can get us more different varieties over the hill you know because at the time you could get pale ale pretty much all over the country or most parts of the country and then every once in a while they'd have a seasonal like bigfoot or their happy bison that would hit the market in a much lesser way but if you wanted their full you wanted to be access to their full range of varieties you had to drive over to the brewery in chico hmm. so the idea was you know have you ever been in an airport and there's like a a gordon Biersch restaurant you know where they serve food and it's all gordon beer spears well those are extensions of the brewery in many cases i'm not saying that brand is but in many cases those are satellite operations of the breweries and our idea was we wanted to appear to be a satellite operation of the brewery but not be owned by the brewery be, instead be independent gotcha i don't know if you've noticed and it has changed a little bit the original colors of paint in the Sierra Tap House, were pulled right from the Sierra Nevada <laughs> Brewing Company's lo- um, like the, the the logos they used on their coasters and and their other uh, marketing. So, you know, we we did uh, we had little angles like that. We were going to call it the Sierra Nevada Tap House, and their marketing department thought that was a little <laughs> a little too close. Yeah, though though we also live in the Sierra Nevada mountains, so we. We thought we had the right to use that as well, you know, kind of community property idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But to keep the relationship amicable, we we trimmed it back to Sierra Tap House, and I'm glad we did. It's a little more. It's it would have been a little more unwieldy if it was longer. So Mm -hmm. uh, on the business side, we're not naturally passionate about brewing ourselves. I think we're passionate about craft beer, Mm -hmm. but we've we've always been more on the business side. We noticed that, you know, if you could if you could sell a 16-ounce Coors Light at the time for 5 or 
that you could sell a 12 ounce bottle of craft beer for six dollars well then why couldn't you sell a 16 ounce draft of craft beer for eight dollars we started thinking about it in those terms and uh what would make people come and try different beer well if you had a lot of different stuff to try that was interesting so that was kind of the the birth of sierra tap house so yeah right after sierra tap house we opened um the old bridge pub which was initially designed to be uh, a bottle shop where folks could go get bottled craft beer and we worked really hard to bring unique things in from all over the united states and, and even other countries and then we opened the brewer's cabinet brew pub followed by the large production facility that was added to that brand and then next the um the tap room or the tasting room and then um we started a new brand which is the shim surplus supplies which is uh the newest one excellent so it's nice that you have this kind of variety you have like the brew pub with food you have the production facility that's this, like this bigger open space with like an outdoor area the tap house i think of as kind of like a neighborhood bar like right down on the river it's very kind of like um people who live in the neighborhood and kind of like in the community i think it's that kind of like local pub vibe so it's nice that you have this variety of different ways for people to come and experience the bc beers right not just in one spot if we focus on the focus on the brewer's cabinet brand that's especially true there we've got um the brew pub you know it's it's a, it's a, the draw there is so you know just frankly speaking most craft beer drinkers are men and men have families right so that model to you can, it's a family friendly place where you can bring the whole family down and have a meal we then have it set up so that very easily you can um try uh, you have access to as much of our portfolio there as you can. Um, the tasting room or the tap room next door is an expansion or extension of that. And then, um, like I said, the the brewery down on the river, the the large production facility is uh, it's a it's a destination brewery. It's a hang, it's a hangout where you can have a beer, play some games, uh, visit with friends, and even take some beer to go at at uh, wholesale prices. That brand tries to hit all the high points and getting our product out there. Mm -hmm. In developing which beers you're going to produce, how do you keep track of trends in beer drinking? I know IPAs dominated the craft beer world and still kind of do. I'm not sure what the current status is, but there seems to be these trends in beer over the years where something will be really popular for a while and there's a lot of like creative and new beers. And I want to talk to you about the Strange Brew Festival thing that's coming up too, because I think that's part of it. So how do you gauge what's going to be popular or figure out what type of beers you want to make? Yeah. So, I mean, I think craft beer is a, is a community in and of itself. It's about people with like interest, interpersonal, you're making something, you're actually crafting, creating something. Um, those are the things that I like about it. Um, also, that I like the business side of it. You know, we we started selling other people's beer, you know, domestic beers, and then we realized there's a little bit better margin and a little bit different appeal in selling other other people's craft beer. And then that story gets better as you know we we moved into making our own. You know, and I think it fits. I think that that culture and the nature of craft beer fits very closely with the type of culture that we have in Northern Nevada. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the big questions I have is kind of what makes a city a good beer city. You know, I lived in Portland for a long time and Portland has a reputation very much as being a city with a lot of good beer and coffee and kind of the same kind of cultural things that bring people together. And there are other cities that have reputations as having a real strong craft brewery scene that has kind of happened in Reno too. So there are several breweries based here in Reno. Can you talk a little bit about what makes Reno a good fit for a craft brewery scene and for BC? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain elements that, and this, you know, this is my opinion. I don't know that any studies have ever been done, but uh, craft beer is a little more accessible uh, than, say, of uh, fine wines, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it really starts with kind of the landscape capabilities of, of of the landscape are not really equipped for wine for growing grapes, right? We have a more arid region. We're at higher elevations. Uh, we're in the rain shadow. So I'm just speaking specifically to Reno, but it also has to do with the preferred activities that are built into the culture in in a space. So, you know, craft beer tends to align with people that are passionate about the outdoors. And of course, in, in Northern Nevada, we have a lot of skiing and mountain biking and these kind of opportunities. It's very much an outdoors kind of a place. You know, we, we've rebranded recently on the city level as America's Adventure Place. That all feeds into it. Mm-hmm. I think that craft beer tends to be be much more appealing to a younger generation. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of folks that are around retirement age, they grew up on domestic beers like uh, that we're all used to. And that's where their palate has stayed. Craft beer takes things in a very different direction, right? Like you said, there's the whole trend towards IPAs. And then there was a different time. There was a trend towards darker beers like stouts and porters. Kind of one of the more recent moves in the marketplace was towards sours. And um, mm-hmm. all of those are acquired tastes, you know, and they they probably take a more adventurous palate to even go in that direction. So I think that um, craft beer fits with the culture for us here in Northern Nevada. Mm-hmm. For a microbrewery or a smaller brewery, you don't necessarily need to live in a a big hub of a city, right? Like you can do it kind of anywhere. And I kind of wonder what the beer community in Reno has looked like over the years since you've started with Brewer's Cabinet. Because, you know, again, you're not the only brewery in town. It seems like we've developed kind of a bit of a, you know, a handful of options and a handful of different breweries is there anything in particular about Reno that has allowed that to happen? Or do you think Reno has developed the kind of beer culture that you're talking about? Again, I think that uh, craft beer has become a passion prevalently with uh, the younger generation. We do have an evolution going on in, in our region right now where, you know, the baby boom generation, which were our parents, they're starting to retire and maybe step away from whatever their business or economic passions were. And, and then, Folks my age are, we're stepping to the forefront and the culture has an influence. The the local culture has an influence on what takes off and what doesn't. But then also we, we that are driving the growth in these certain industries, you know, we, we have, I think we have influence too, Mm -hmm. you know, but we put it out there and we, we market and we, we try to be knowledgeable and we try to share knowledge and, you know, so it's, it's not just, uh, the sense of culture that pulls it out, but it's us pushing it out too. And, and, you know, Reno's experienced a lot of evolution in the last 
10 or 15 years with, you know, a lot of people from outside the region have moved in to make their homes here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's probably lowered the average age of, of our population. It's also brought diversity in, diversity of taste and culture and diversity of experience. You know, people come here from other states and they've, they've had uh, other experiences and they bring new ideas and, and all of that, all of that has helped all of that elements of that, uh, that evolution have framed what we're doing now. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I, that's where I think it, where it fits and why it fits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense that people that are moving to Reno are having an influence on what works here, you know, what's popular, what businesses are able to succeed. Whenever people are very critical of the the growth of Reno or people moving from California, I like to think about some of the, the food and drink and culture that comes with that. And I'm glad that we have a little bit more food and drink culture in Reno, including with beer. One of the things that I know a lot of cities try to do is have like a brewery district. Has Reno done anything like that? I know there's the the ballpark district has like, you know, East 4th Street. There's this um, kind of like brewery vibes, but I don't know if it's designated as a brewery district. What have you kind of seen with Reno's attempts to create that kind of uh, environment focus specifically around beer and breweries? There's been, there have been different efforts to create districts as you uh, named them, which is a good word for them. And that the term is actually often used by planners and entrepreneurs and city officials here locally and in various ways that it's been tried. You know, the city put several million dollars into the downtown piece of the Truckee River to create the kayak park and the, and the I think they call it the water slalom park over on the other side and that attracted a, a new activity and, and new events and not just on the river it's or in the river itself but you know all along the river walk and that became the river walk to dis- river walk district you know mm-hmm. i think more generally there have been other, other efforts to create a walking district which is you know we have great weather here most of the year a lot of clear sunny skies even when it's a little chilly and it's it's just pleasant to get out and walk around in this climate, right? And so mm-hmm. in a place like Seattle, where they're getting so much annual rainfall a year, you know, I'm not sure that that is as true, right? And so I think we have the climate for it and uh, the sunshine for it. And there's the ballpark district. There's East 4th Street. Um, I think the coalition of business owners over there got together and they self named that piece of the city um the brewery district and there's um and there's some some cooperation from the city if you go down east 4th street down by where a lot of those newer businesses are focused they they actually have the banners on the lampposts that say brewery district there's been talk over the years of closing off portions of virginia street in downtown and make those their own kind of walking district i've even heard of perhaps closing off part of California and make California Avenue and making it a walking district. So for a long time, there's been a a desire to do more of that. And I think that being able to walk around and go to a couple of different breweries and uh, experience different offerings in in a day uh, or a weekend is a really pleasant thought, and I hope it continues to evolve that way. Mm-hmm. One other thought that I had, I've had over the years, I don't know the economics of winemaking, but it strikes me that 
probably the barriers to entry for craft brewing of beer are lower. You know, first mm. of all, most of the time, if you get into the winemaking business, you have to be a farmer first, right? right. You you have to have a, a sizable piece of land. You have to grow grapes for, you know, I'm sure pre preparing the land as you initially start out is somewhat involved. And then there's, you got to grow grapes for a season before you get, get to the winemaking. And uh, I imagine that making something marketable, you know, getting it to the point where it's, you can scale it to the point where it's profitable is, is much trickier or is different at least in craft beer. You can start brewing a batch as, you know, as small as five gallons. You could take the risk a little bit, a little, at little bites at the time, you know, growing incrementally and scaling your business and, it can get expensive, but you don't need a lot of land. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you have a season that has poor weather weather patterns or wildfires or something, and if you're in the wine business, you're fit, you know, you're stuck. If you're in the beer business, you know, maybe you we're outsourcing ingredients from other other places, oftentimes other countries, you know, and so if we're used to getting our our hops or our malt from Germany and there's a problem in that region, well, we can go to England and get it, or we can go to the east coast of the United States. We're not mm -hmm. stuck. It's more agile. So uh, I think that, you know, to the extent that people have the freedom to start into craft beer in their, in, in something as basic as their garage, then uh, that probably plays a, a lot, a role into how our industry is shaped and evolved as well. Mm -hmm. What were those first forays into making beer like for you? So you obviously have this intention of growing into a larger beer producer. I don't know if you, you know, started with a five gallon batch in your house, but what was your kind of learning experience like on coming into the world of making beer? Well, so we started, I'm not sure how many years ago, but sure, certainly prior to 2012, Sierra Tap House started. Uh, and this was Mike Connolly's, my business partner's um, idea. Right there in the circular pavilion next to Sierra Tap House, we started the Reno Homebrew Festival. And it was, you know, not not professionals, but hobbyists, essentially, homebrewers. Mm -hmm. And we invited as many as we could. I think we had about 20. And these are people that were making beer, you know, in their garage or at their homes and the whole the homebrew world and we we that's what really gave us our first peek at what that process actually looked like and uh, i think one of the first or second the first or second year we we invited uh, one of the judges was the brewmaster of uh, at sierra nevada brewing company which was really exciting because here's one of the guys that he runs the entire brewing program at one of the pioneer breweries in the nation, right? And he's willing to come over to Reno, Nevada and be a judge for our very new kind of pop-up event. He had such great feedback. It felt good to know that we were producing something that an expert thought was high quality. Mm -hmm. And the prize for those, of those first few events was um, the winners got to go over and participate in a, a we called it brew camp, but it was a, a brewing weekend with the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company brew team. Which, if you're a home brewer, that's that's super exciting. You know, yeah. you get to go into a commercial craft brewery and participate in the process. So that really gave us a peek into that world. It gave us some motivation that we we can we could do this ourselves. 
and I think the positive reinforcement that came from, uh, you know, somebody that had been making craft beer for a long time and was saying, you guys might be on to something. So, um, that was how that, how that thought process really started and kicked up into next, the next, you know, onto the next level for us. I think our first attempt at brewing was, yeah, was, was like a, there was a, a pilot system and a pilot system is a, a mobile system. I think it brews about 10 gallons or 15 gallons at a time. It's ours was actually made out of kegs, you know, the, the silver kegs that you'll see in a, in the back of a restaurant or in a walk-in cooler or something that those are, you know, it had a couple of these on a, on a rack or on a cart and there were some more apparatus and stuff there too, but it had wheels on it. Many breweries have a pilot system and they use it to test new recipes. You know, instead of taking up the, the full real estate of a, of a big high volume fermenter, mm-hmm. uh, can run a small batch in here and see if it needs to be adjusted or, or just completely thrown away. That was really interesting. I mean, brewing beer, the way I would describe it, is half science and half art. There are brewers that, you know, very mechanically write down all their recipes, their temperatures, their durations, you know, in a, in a binder. And they perfect them over time through trial and error and through the various ways that we measure things. And some brewers just, it's all in their head. They kind of operate by feel and taste and touch. And, uh, you know, I think the best brewers are, are a combination of both of those things. You know, we, we learned all that over time. We've brought some very talented brewers onto the team over time. And I'm very proud of the work that they've done. And it just it just continues to grow from there. And, and of course, we get a lot of feedback from our customer base, too things as simple as have you tried going in this direction with a beer or infusing it with these flavors or using these ingredients or and then then of course a lot of it is uh our own creativity Mm -hmm. so coming up coming up with new ideas and seeing if they work and if they don't i mean we probably have across the whole brewer's cabinet offering right now we probably have 25 to 30 different flavors in the market and and over the years we've probably created three times that or more um, mm-hmm. and some of them have faded away. Some of them stuck around, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a food product, right? It's something that people put into their bodies. So it's, uh, it's something very personal to the consumer mm-hmm. and it's something that, that will change over time, you know, as trends change and as people get older and as their palate changes, that can create new uh, demand in the marketplace. You know, like, just like I was saying earlier, the world went through a very big IPA phase and, and and I think IPAs have have had some of the best uh, staying power you know that the market remains very IPA heavy today and uh, there's a lot of demand for IPAs in the market now uh, still sours had their run and have found their niche uh, in a different way dark beers like stouts and porters you know they trended up and then they kind of found their place so we're paying attention to all of these things you know both our own ideas inform our evolution and outside ideas for uh inform our evolution Mm -hmm. what kind of challenges did you run into 
with scaling up, going from kind of those initial batches and figuring out what you wanted to do to now you're doing pretty large scale production. Did you have any challenges or um, things that were surprising to you in that process of kind of um, the growth? Well, yeah, you know, um, where the where the process starts is in is in one tank where the water is brought up to a boil and the grain is added and other ingredients are added and that it cooks it essentially releasing the sugars from the plant-based ingredients that you put in mm-hmm. and that process that stage of the process only needs a few hours and then it's transferred to another tank where uh, and, and there are, there's all different ways to approach this so this is just a basic rundown of the process um i know that more uh, experienced brewers uh, might hear this podcast and start giving a lot of feedback. Oh, that's not exactly right. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm trying to be <laughs> simplistic here. Uh, yeah, that's generally how these conversations go. Right. It's very, so, very 101. Exactly. So the first phase takes a few hours. The second phase where the, the product is, is cooled and filtered and maybe tested and other ingredients are added, that takes a few hours. And then we transfer it to a, another tank, fermenters, and it will need to stay there for, you know, 10 days to eight weeks to, to months sometimes. You know, you th- if you think about it, you can have only one, you only need one piece of equipment for stage one and one piece of equipment for stage two, but you need many, many, many fermenters, right? Mm. And so um, as you want to scale, you have to go buy more of the big tanks and at our level they can be a hundred thousand dollars or more and so the challenge that we've experienced is that we have basically reached we've reached peak production for the capacity that we have very quickly after we add new capacity so said another way everybody every time we've purchased new fermenters we quickly realized that we could use more fermenters, um, mm-hmm. which is a great problem to have, but it's not always easy to go get hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, on, on the fly like that. Mm-hmm. The other challenge we've had, which kind of sounds counterintuitive, given what I just said, is you can see that demand tracking with your capacity meaning you can't make beer fast enough you feel like sometimes and that makes you very eager to want to grow faster Mm -hmm. and we very i think we very clearly have seen over the last 15 years that we've been close to this industry the two things that will kill a craft brewery are growing too fast scaling too fast and taking on debt too fast. And uh, those go hand in hand. Obviously, people take on the debt to grow, but we see so many, you know, they're what rise up is very steep and they, they peak rather, rather quickly and many have trouble. And so what the challenge for us has been resisting the urge <laughs> to grow faster than we do. Um, mm-hmm. And we try to keep it at a slow, steady, single-digit growth rate year over year so that we don't really, you know, we, it's very easy to get overextended and you then underperform. And, um, you know, especially if you get into retailers like we are, uh, you might, you might work for two years to get into a Costco, a regional Costco, right? 
But the minute you can't fill their order, they replace your product with another product because they that that they're extremely allergic to empty shelf space in the retail world, you know. So mm-hmm. then you lose that, and you might be a couple of years just getting the conversation going with them again. And you've already proven to them that you can't perform 100% of the time, right? So it's 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 very tricky. Also, there's there's a lot of legislation around how beer is made and how it's transported. So it's really difficult to be a, a Reno-based brewer, for example, and just go, instead of growing slowly outward, outward, you know, from that region or from your starting region, if you say, well, I'm going to go into Las Vegas or I'm going to go into another state. Well, do you know how the laws differ in that state? Mm. How, how are you going to get it there? You know, uh, is it, does it, do the economics still work if you put it on a truck and have it driven eight or 10 hours away? How do you control the supply chain to know that your refrigeration, you know, your product is cared for correctly along the way? So that those are the challenges we've dealt with. You know, there's, there's, there's capital outlay, there's capital acquisition. Um, you know, in order to grow, we need those things, but then also we're resisting the urge to grow uh, too fast. So does that make sense? Yeah, totally. One thing that I understand that you do at Brewer's Cabinet, and I don't know the details of it, but there's some kind of piece of, I don't know if it's every beer or most beers that goes into some fund that you do for other local businesses. Can you explain, I don't know what this program is, but can you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can so, you tell uh, me a little bit about what that is? It's it's a little bit different than, um, it, you're very close. So uh, years ago, you know, we, we got started in this industry. There was kind of the way that traditional lenders talked about the food and beverage industry is that it had a high failure rate. So it was difficult, maybe even unheard of in the late 90s, early 2000s, to be able to go, especially as a young person, to be able to go into a bank and say, well, I'd like to buy uh, a food and beverage establishment. Can I get a loan? That was just, it was super hard. Then there were some government programs, like through the SBA, and they're really tricky. They're very involved take a lot they take a long time and the food and beverage industry moves really fast so even the small business administration avenue was hard for people to access and it was hard to make it work you know if it's going to take you nine or ten months to complete their process and get a loan your food and beverages may it may not it not may it may not just sit there and last for nine months you know so we got started borrowing money from friends and family some private investors at high interest rates, this kind of stuff. And um, I consider that we were, I consider us fortunate that we were able to pull it off and um, have such a great response from the, from the, the customers. And we saw along the way that many other people were experiencing the same challenges with, with regards to access to capital. Mm-hmm. And maybe they weren't from Reno like we all were. So they didn't have this friends and family base that they could draw from. We actually ended up forming our own nonprofit. It's a registered 501c3 at the federal level called the Reno Rebuild Project. It's essentially a micro lending effort. One of our logos for that that nonprofit is a, is a nickel, you know, it's a, a US nickel. 
the original model was we take five cents from every item sold across our properties. So whether it's a beer or a burger or a six pack or, you know, a t-shirt for each item sold across all of the properties, we would allocate that those funds, they'd be donated to the nonprofit. And uh, then the Reno Rebo projects, we have a committee and we have um, an application process where small businesses can apply for a loan at a reasonable interest rate. It's meant to help out. It's meant to grow small business, but it's also meant to hopefully provide more employment opportunities in the Reno area, as well as add, you know, contribute to the tax base and, and, to, and to keep as many square feet of our retail space here locally occupied as possible. So we have some requirements like, um, you know, you don't have to be in the food and beverage industry, but it needs to be a, uh, a business that has a storefront. And, you know, if you wanted to have a internet based life coaching business that you run out of your garage, that doesn't really fit the criteria. But if you want to start a t-shirt shop or you want to, you know, you have a small bar and you want to, get the unit next door that's vacant and, you know, blow out the wall and expand an existing business. Mm -hmm. Um, that would help, you know, if, and so we have an application process, we have a review committee, we kind of narrow it down to a few finalists. We have an interview process. We'll do a site visit and then we'll distribute a small loan with at a reasonable interest rate. And then we, you know, we have people on our committee on our board that are from different industries and we don't obligate, the award recipients, the, the loan recipients to mentorship, but we heavily encourage it and we, we put it out there, you know, so like, you know, Mike and I can go in and, and he's a really good operator so he can give mentorship on how to operate a business. And I have a background in construction so I can help when it comes to how we would build things out or lay them out. We have, at one time we had an attorney on our board and we have an accountant and a banker. And so we have this, body of expertise that's quite diverse that I, we then um, offer out to the world. So to try and set everybody up as much for success as possible. And the feedback we've gotten from the general public is, has been overwhelmingly positive that that's just a great way to give back. And, and if you think about it, it's not just a, a Reno story. You could cut and paste that to almost any city in the nation. So it, it's, it's such a simple yet really implementable, really useful way to give back. And I've been really impressed by how the public has responded. People come into the restaurants and uh, or the, the, the establishments and say, yeah, you know, it feels good to spend my money here because I know you guys, you know, give back to the community. You know, Reno has become a very keep it local kind of town and it, and it just all plays in together you know like if i support locally owned small businesses and then i learned that there's some small businesses that end up giving back to other locally owned small businesses so that they can be successful as well uh, everybody feels good about that and also we've had some outside donations you know we've had people step forward and say you know I just sold my house or my business and I really love, you know, I, re I have really loved learning and, and reading about your Reno Rebuild project and 
they'll give a one-time donation, a substantial one-time donation. Or we have some folks that are supportive in ways that they give, you know, a monthly donation. So from outside sources, we've had other money funds um, donated towards the the nonprofit segment of our business, and that that all that all feels really good because it means you know there there are people that in this community, you know, that give a crap and um, that are interested in helping out other members of the community. And it just, it's been an all around pretty easy thing to pull off and a pretty, uh, a, a pretty feel good play. So yeah, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, that's excellent. One of the places that I like to drink beer is at festivals, uh, getting to try a lot of different beers. That was one of my favorite things in Portland. They had several beer festivals. Just recently, I went to the Brew Ha Ha, which was the fundraiser for the CR Arts Foundation and, you know, a ton of different beers there. And you have a beer festival coming up too, right? The Strange Brew Fest. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? So actually, if you remember back a few minutes ago, I I mentioned the uh, Reno Homebrew Festival that we started years ago, right outside here, Tap House. That kind of gave us our first and best real peek into the process of brewing and, and craft beer. And, and that's, that is true, but that event itself evolved into the strange brew event that we have today. The event was moved from the public pavilion near Sierra tap house over to our own parking lot at brewer's cabinet. And the concept was it evolved into, okay, not just, brewing your own beer that's unique for this event, but that is truly unique. We started to include commercial brewers, so professional brewers, people from breweries in other states even uh, came. Um, It's really become a popular event. I think this year we will, you know, we are space constrained a little bit, but we'll have 800 people there. Um, We probably sell 700 plus tickets, but sell out and then we'll have the brewers and other support staff there. And, and, you know, it, it'll be, it'll be well attended. We did have to take a little bit of a hiatus, uh, during COVID, no large gatherings were allowed, but we've brought it back this year. It's going to be on May the 21st, again, at Brewers Cabinet at 475 South Arlington. You know, you can get all this information that I'm giving you, get on the Brewers Cabinet website, but it'll be on that Saturday, three to 7 PM. Your tickets are, I highly encourage you to buy them prior to the event. We have been selling out almost every year that we've been doing the Strange Brew Festival. And, you know, now that people have been, you know, cooped up for a couple of years, we expect, I mean, I think we're nearly sold out now. So, um, you know, I would not wait till the day of, but, you know, we have 14 commercial breweries, all from Nevada this time, and five home brewers and uh, they've been given the challenge to come up with something truly unique or weird. And there will be different prizes for the weirdest, you know, people's choice, the best. Those are different categories. I mean, and we've had some pretty wild and fun stuff over the years. Uh, some that stick out, I mean, are, there was a stout flavored with unique spices. Um, we've had uh, sours, that have been flavored with Pez candies um, and, you know, just anything you could think of. And um, some of them are 
probably not as marketable as others, but they're all really fun. I mean, they're all really fun. And it's, you know, most brewers, when they're, when they're go, doing their daily job, their day-to-day, they don't have the time to get super wacky and experimental like this. Or their, their facility can't afford to lend that, that capacity to uh, such a wacky or experimental thing. So that they could take the time out and the time away, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's their own personal time to do something fun and different once a year. And then we provide a space for them to showcase it. It's been really, really fun. And it's been really popular. Weather should be great. And um, we're all very excited for it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Zach, for coming on the show to tell me a little bit about the Brewer's Cabinet, the history of the business, kind of the beer community in Reno. Like I said, I have hosted trivia for the last three years at all of the Brewer's Cabinet locations just um, over the course of the years, some more than others. And it's really great to kind of learn a little bit more about you and the biz. So thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites, and special thanks to my guest, Zach Cage, from the Brewer's Cabinet. Really appreciated the opportunity to learn a little bit about the business and Reno's craft beer scene and the Strange Brew Festival. I think weird beers are really fun, so I'm looking forward to that event at the Brewer's Cabinet on Arlington and California. If you enjoyed this episode or any others, please do me a favor. Tell your friends. Word of mouth is the most important way for a podcast like this to reach the people who might enjoy it. It's very expensive to pay for advertising. It's very difficult to spread the word around a show like this. So your help, your recommendations, you sharing posts makes all the difference in the world. I really appreciate if you would be willing to do that if you want to let people know about the show. And that's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.